Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case. Have you ever woken up early in the morning, gone for a ride after skipping breakfast and thought, I wonder if that was bad for my training? Or maybe it was good? Well, in today's episode, we try to decipher if there are advantages, disadvantages to occasionally riding or exercising in general in a fasted state. What does fasted actually mean in this context? How's that help? How's that hurt my training? How conclusive is the evidence? How often should I do it? Those are just some of the questions we'll try to answer today. Fasting is one of those subjects that many of you have likely heard mentioned in passing, but whether or not it can lead to true performance gains, that's another matter that many of us probably don't have the answer to. To fast or not to fast, that is the question. Today we go particularly deep into the details of fasting, from the different types of fasting you can use for both health and performance benefits, to the genetic and cellular mechanisms which could play a role in adaptations. There are two overriding questions. Does fasting have health benefits? Does it help in training and performance, as I've mentioned? The science is pointing towards clear health benefits, but performance and training are less clear. We'll explore all of that and much more today on Fast Talk. Our primary guest is someone who has spent his research career looking into these very questions. Dr. Brian Carson of the University of Limerick in Ireland is a leading expert on the effects of exercise in a fasted state, as will become patently clear when we dive into the science. We'll also hear today from longtime USA Cycling coach Jim Miller, pro roadie Petr Vakoc, pro mountain biker Pace McKelvin, leading physiologist Dr. Inigo San Milan, and neurologist Dr. Dale Bredis. Put down that cookie. Let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Trevor, I know you're a fan of looking at the big picture when it comes to training. Sounds like Whoop has introduced a feature that really allows you to look at that big picture with your Whoop data. I don't remember if they had this back when I was using the 2.0 strap, but they have it now, and I actually really like this journal feature. There are a whole variety of metrics you can track from diet to sleep, whether you're sleeping at altitude, supplements, a whole bunch of other things I'm not going to go into. But you can pick all these metrics and then you track them every day. So you get up in the morning, you put in your results for those metrics. And first I was putting in going, okay, so, so what does this do? And then saw the month assessment. So at the end of every month, they give you an analysis. And I love looking for trends and data. So this is just a gold mine for me because it will match up these different things that you are tracking in your journal with your recovery scores, with your sleep scores. And so, for example, something that I noticed, I have been taking a magnesium supplement at night to help I get migraines, and it seemed to help with my migraines. And everybody says, well, take magnesium before you go to bed, it helps you to sleep. Well, interestingly, that magnesium supplement is matching up with poor sleep. So when I take it, I don't sleep as well, which surprised me, but, there's some truth to it. And since I saw that in my monthly report, I've been watching it and, and yeah, it's there. I don't sleep as well when I take it. 
Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter FASTTALK at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Fast Talk. We've got a very exciting episode in store for you today, a a topic that Trevor and I have spoken about internally, at least, a lot. We've received a lot of questions from listeners out there about this, this topic of exercising while in a fasted state. Does it lead to performance gains? Does it lead to adaptations? What's going on? Why should you do it? How do you do it? Um, And we've got a fantastic guest on today, Dr. Brian Carson, sitting in Limerick, Ireland. Welcome to the program, Dr. Carson. Uh, Hi, guys. Uh, Thanks very much for having me on. I was flattered to get the invitation and and delighted to come on and speak to you today. We're excited to have you on the show. So thank you. Yeah. uh, You know, this is a field you've researched for quite some time, I imagine. We want to cover it from a few different angles. Could you give us a of one or two sentence, or one or two minute, we'll give you a, a little bit longer than a sentence, background on your research in this field. Principally, uh, I, I was trained as a sports scientist originally, and, and, and I went on to do a PhD in exercise physiology. Uh, and my specialism was in uh, muscle metabolism, mainly metabolic adaptation to exercise uh, at the molecular level in the muscle. So um, I've always been interested in exercise. And then more recently and um, became interested in the, the interaction between exercise and nutrition to, to drive adaptation uh, in the muscle. So always been interested in muscle metabolic genes and how they adapt in, in terms of in response to an acute bout of exercise, how that can be manipulated by nutri- nutrition and then uh, chronically over time. So repeated bouts of exercise combined with uh, nutrition strategies uh, to augment and, and I guess optimize the the adaptation at, at the level of the muscle in terms of metabolism, and um, so that's been my research focus for the last number of years since I've since I moved to Limerick. Um, I work with a number of um, industry partners who come in from the nutrient side, and then we combine some of their products with with, with, with some of the exercise regimes uh, that I'm interested in. So, uh, one topic that's always been of interest to me was the the influence of carbohydrate, I guess, on uh, that adaptation um, and I guess what we're going to talk a little bit about today is sometimes how that adaptation is blunted by the presence of carbohydrate or is augmented in its absence uh, and that's always been fascinating to me uh, and I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that as the afternoon progresses. We asked Jim Miller, Chief of Sports Performance for USA Cycling, his thoughts on fasting. He didn't mince his words. Curious to know if you Um, have experimented or if you are a a believer in intermittent fasting and its effects on performance? Yeah, um, I have experimented with it. Uh, I have actually gone, I don't use it. Uh, I tried it. Uh, I didn't find it very effective. I found what it did was put athletes into a low energy state and we spent more time trying to recover than we benefited from it. Yeah, so that's a pretty short way of saying your experience is that it, it's not effective at all. Correct. 
and I know the science for it and, and I don't disagree with the science for it. It's, it's just in my experience, it hasn't been successful. Yeah. So you're finding that it, it's just shutting down the glycolysis, shutting down your ability to use sugars and you just kind of get lethargic. Is that, that yep. what I'm hearing? Yep. Yep. And, and that training session sucks. And then the subsequent training sessions suck if they don't refuel properly. And with athletes, the chances of them not refueling properly um, from something like that is high. So, Question I've got to ask you based on, on the focus of your research. How many muscle biopsies have you done now? Have you lost count? I've lost count. I actually had a count there maybe a couple of years ago. I'm just trying to think back to that. I think we've probably done about three to 400 muscle biopsies. In terms of muscle biopsies on myself, it's not too many. It's about 16. That's good. That was my second question. 16? <laughs> it's about 16. Yeah, yeah, about 16. Tend to be the grad students now and the postdocs and, uh, and the undergrads that were, that were prodding these days. And uh, I'm starting to fall outside the age range for recruitment for most of the studies. So uh, I'm somewhat protected at this point. My old advisor, when I was doing my master's, his research was very similar to yours. And he used to brag about the fact that his one leg was a pink cushion. <laughs> he had done so many muscle biopsies on himself. Yeah, we, we haven't been too bad. I've been I've been lucky enough. Um, most of the biopsies I've had have been with the the Bergstrom needle, but we've actually used um, or we've moved in our lab at least to the microbiopsy technique, which is like a a punch biopsy and, and doesn't require an incision beforehand, and it's it's much less invasive. So. You know, we, we can still brag to the new students that we, we used to use the old school technique where we take about 200 megs of muscle, whereas now we're taking <laughs> 25 to 50. So uh, we still hold something over them at least. Ah, nice. the good old days. Yes. <laughs> well, Trevor, I know, um, you know, as we've spoken about this topic, there's a lot of different types of fasting to this conversation. Uh, probably helpful to start off with a, with a review of what those different fasting types are. Give a little explanation so that we are clear about what we're going to speak about today. Fasting's becoming this very popular term. There's a lot of people who are giving it a try. And I don't think that a lot of people realize that when you're talking about fasting, there's a whole lot of different things you're talking about. So the, whenever somebody says, well, I want to try intermittent fasting, uh, either just for health or for performance reasons, my first question is always, well, what are you trying? Uh, and I'm just going to give you my bias because I, I have had this question more times than I would like uh, on, on the nutrition side of things, where I've had people say, well, you know, I've heard intermittent fasting is good. What do you think of five or seven day fasts? To which I respond, that is not fasting. That's intentionally starving yourself. That's, let's not talk about that. So we're talking about intermittent fasting, which is more short-term. We're not going to go into this too deep in this show, but in the nutrition world, you're starting to see evidence that there are potential health benefits to this. Though, bear in mind, they still haven't done a lot of human studies. It's been mostly animal studies. But on the animal side, they've seen a lot of positive benefits. We're talking about sports so there, the, we will discuss a bit of the health side. We're also going to talk about the performance side. You know, this is my list. I'm sure other people will divide this up differently, but I really see it as when you're talking about fasting and sports, there, there's four potential things you're talking about. 
the first and the simplest, which is kind of old school, is just the not eating or drinking anything except water when you ride. So we used to call this the coffee ride uh, when I lived up in British Columbia because there was ho this whole group that liked to go out and do six-hour rides, and they called it the coffee ride because they'd drink a cup of coffee before the ride and then go ride. And that's kind of old school, and th there can be some issues with that. Another one which we've talked about on this show that isn't really fasting, but it's kind of fasting mimicking, is carbohydrate manipulation. So we've had Dr. Noakes on the show, we've had Dr. Holly on the show, and they've both talked about this. This is this idea that you severely restrict carbohydrate intake. So you're still eating a fairly normal quantity of calories through the day, but it's high fat, uh, a little higher protein, either very little or, or almost no carbohydrates. And that puts your body in a fasting mimicked, mimicked state. And like I said, we've already talked about that a lot on the show, so we're not really going to go into that today. The third group and I would have is talking about intermittent fasting, but intermittent fasting where you're doing it for health reasons, and it just also happens that you're an athlete who, who exercises. So we're not getting yet into the timing it with exercise. So you might be doing it for health reasons. You might be doing it for religious reasons. As a matter of fact, a lot of the research on intermittent fasting looks at Ramadan, where that's religious fasting. But when you're talking about intermittent fasting... Even there, there's three types of intermittent fasting. I've heard a lot of different names for this. The ones that I'm going to use are there's intermittent caloric restriction, which is the most basic. It's basically you just don't eat for a day, for at least 24 hours, sometimes longer. Uh, and you might do that once or, or twice per week. The next type is alternate day fasting which is very similar. This is two, three times a week. You severely restrict your caloric intake. You eat about 25% of what you expend, which is for most people about four to 600 calories. And then on your other days, you eat what's called ad libitum, which is just don't count calories, just eat what, what you'd like. The last type is called time-restricted feeding. And this is this idea of you have an extended period of time through the day where you don't eat, and then you have a short window where you eat normally, uh, and again, don't really restrict yourself. So it might be typical, might be something like a 16-hour a fast with, with eight hours of eating, or an 18-hour fast, uh, six hours of eating. And this is something that uh, many people who do time-restricted feeding will do this every single day. So they have a period through the day where they don't eat. They often combine it with sleep because sleep, remember, is a time-restricted fast. So they might stop eating four or five hours before they go to bed, or they might eat until they go to sleep, then do their fast. And when they wake up in the morning, wait until sometime in the afternoon to start eating. The last type is, is this what we're really going to be focusing on today which is somewhat of a, a hybrid of many of what we're talking about, which is this exercising in a fasted state. Dr. Carson, very interested in, in you kind of jumping with this, but if you eat until you exercise and then don't eat while exercising, that's not actually exercising in a fasted state because it takes your body time to go into a fasted mode. 
So in order to do this, you have to both have a kind of apply what we were just talking about with this time restriction where you have an extended period where you don't eat before you exercise. Then you go and exercise and you also don't eat while you're exercising. So it's taking elements of, of everything that we just spoke about. We just described a variety of ways to do intermittent fasting and fasting while training. The question is, what are athletes actually doing? We asked Petter Vakoch with Alpacin Phoenix his thoughts. He had some personal experience to share. One of the things that you mentioned in your email was about um, intermittent fasting that you do. So do you want to talk a little bit about how much you've tried it, your experiences with that, what you find to be advantageous, what you find to be sort of detrimental when it comes to intermittent fasting and training? Yeah, I've been always really interested in uh, nutrition and uh, obviously recently there is a lot of talk about uh, intermittent fasting, but uh, yeah, I was trying to, you know, find a way how to put it in the, in the training, but I found that it's very difficult when you have a hard training program or races to, to fit it in more than maybe let's say once a month or even two months. So originally I started uh, in the off season where the training load is lower, almost known. And yeah, I just uh, wanted to to see if my body can uh, adapt a bit more on uh, using fat as a fuel. And from what I found, this uh, should be a good strategy. So I started pretty easy with baby steps i would say just like 24 hour fast in the off season then i tried uh, 36 hours or so and then i tried even a few times during the season maybe if i had a stage race or something that was hard but not extremely hard i would take i would take the first day uh i would eat normally just uh, fill up my body and uh, the second day i would take completely off, no training at all, not even a recovery ride. And then I would use this uh, 24 hour fast or maybe until the next morning. uh, So some 36 hours and uh, in that way, uh, give my body a little bit of break from uh, all the eating that uh, we have to do during uh, the races. Now, did you find it had, at least in the short run, any sort of impact on your training or your racing? Did you notice an effect? I think the most effect I uh, noticed, like on my on my stomach uh, and my gut issues, that I often after the race uh, feel not so comfortable, or even like longer period during the the season, just like eating so much, and even like what happens to me that uh, when I race and uh, we, although we burn so much calories, I tend up uh, to put on weight and uh, even like, you know, the days after the, the race, I still tend to be really hungry. So that's also a way how to uh, help me to, to correct this uh, overeating. And uh, the strategy to use it only the, the second day after after the race, I find also good because then uh, I make sure that uh, the body gets 
enough energy to recover after the race and then maybe even give it some extra rest that uh, the digestive system doesn't have to work and uh, in that way it helps me really well to maintain my weight and to feel better. I'll actually pick up just on some of what you, you finished on in terms of the, the intermittent fasting type protocols there. I think there are some potential for, um, you mentioned the, maybe the modified alternate day fasting um, whereby you have maybe one meal per day between maybe 12 and two o'clock that. And then the next day that you're, you're feeding more normally and then back to a, a, another modified fasting day but you're getting that sort of 18 to 20 hours between meals. And that seems to be potentially very important um, in terms of having an additional effect to to, to normal caloric restriction uh, based on the literature that I've read so far. And what you're seeing is, you know, things like the five, two, where uh, two of the days are interspersed and throughout the week is that you're having a bit, basically the same effect as, as, a, as a normal caloric restriction. But if you combine two of the days together and you extend that period of fasting, then, then you seem to have a greater uh, impact on, on some of the metabolic markers, not at, during fasting, but actually during the postprandial period. Um, and the same is true for that alternate day fa- fasting model. Um, I'm really interested in, in some of the time-restricted eating data that's coming out. I mean, in all of these models, we have very limited data in humans, um, but that's starting to be rectified at this point in time. But I, I know you've had Dr. John Hawley on the, on the show before, and, and I attended a webinar that he gave uh, uh, during lockdown, actually, and it was really, really interesting on, on some of the preliminary data that they have in terms of that time-restricted eating to an eight-hour window uh, within the day some of the metabolic effects are, are, are really quite staggering and similar to what you'd see um, with exercise training, actually, and, and that's without the exercise. So it is a good potential model, but again, it needs a, a greater evidence base at this time. Um, and that kind of comes along to that final point that you made is that when we're talking about fasting, we're not talking about something here that's just three or four hours. You're talking about something which is extended um, and then lasts into the actual exercise period, which is which is where we're going to focus on today. So I, I kind of almost start with a definition here. Fasted exercise is, is the absence of food and or an energy beverage uh, prior to exercise. So you, you mentioned a few moments ago, the coffee ride would maybe just about be acceptable um, in that there's a nutrient in there in terms of caffeine, but it's, it's, it's not, it, it's not an, uh, it's not an energy source as such. Um, or if it, the amount of energy that will be in that particular drink would be negligible. But typically what we're talking about here is, is, is just maybe uh, water ad libitum um, in or around the exercise session. Um, and I guess maybe we just kind of start from the top is around why, why would we even consider um, exercising in a fasted state? And the goal of most people when they're doing this and, and in the science around it is to try and manipulate substrate utilization during exercise. So manipulating the, the contribution um, to your energy provision uh, from both carbohydrate and, and lipid sources. So what you're looking to probably do or what most athletes are looking to do or, or most of your listeners are trying to do at this point is to, is to utilize lipid sources more predominantly and where possible spare uh, muscle glycogen, spare carbohydrate sources. 
the other thing that people are trying to do is to try and drive the endurance phenotype in the adaptive response. So to move to a model where we probably have greater metabolic flexibility um, at lower intensities, again, we can shift that substrate utilization more predominantly to the lipid rather than the carbohydrate stores. Um, increase things like markers of our mitochondrial content and function, which provide uh, ATP, the energy currency uh, for the cell, so that we can, I guess, ride at higher speeds or greater intensities uh, for longer, and increase some of the markers and enzymes that are involved in both lipid and carbohydrate oxidation within these mitochondria and to provide that ATP more readily. And then a couple of the other reasons why people are doing is probably to manipulate energy balance in some way uh, with a view to maybe improving body composition, uh, decrease in, in fat and maintaining uh, lean tissue mass or muscle mass. And then the final reason that certain people actually undertake facet exercise generally is that because they experience gut or GI discomfort uh, when exercising. So particularly people who exercise in the morning and um, they're getting up after fasting overnight trying to cram in a meal and then their exercise is difficult in terms of timing without uh, encountering some GI discomfort. So they find it easier or more convenient to actually exercise in the fastest state. Luckily, uh, you know, even just in advance of the, of the, of the call today, just going over the most recent literature, it's just pre-published online from a group in Auckland and they've surveyed about almost 2000 athletes um, to establish their practice around fasted exercise and establish their reasons for exercising in the fasted state. And what they found was interesting, and that was quite popular, quite common, about 62% of the athletes they sur surveyed were using fasted training somewhere uh, in, their, in their preparation for their events. A couple of other things were interesting with that it's more predominant in, uh, in males. Non-professional athletes are more likely to use fasted exercise. Uh, and those who are manipulating their diet or following a specific diet, such as perhaps a, a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, are more likely to engage in, in fasted training. And the reasons are for, uh, as I outlined a couple of moments ago, to, to increase lipid utilization during exercise, um, to maintain good comfort, actually, and then finally was, was convenience. And the reason maybe some of the more professional athletes weren't doing it was because they were finding it wasn't benefiting their training in some cases, uh, or they were feeling really poor during high intensity training uh, sessions and they felt they couldn't train at the same intensity. Uh, and there are things that we might get into in, in the overall discussion uh, as we go on. So I hope that kind of sets up at least a little bit of the why and, and, and what we'll start to get into and discuss uh, this afternoon. Yeah, I think you're you're touching on a, a really important point, which uh, again might explain why top level athletes are a little more hesitant, but people who are doing this more for health and fitness reasons uh, are more interested in this. There is two questions here about the fasting. One is, are there health benefits? And I would say the research is mostly pointing in that direction. The second question is, does this help performance? And I know we're going to get into that, but I think that's where you get a little grayer. And there's certainly evidence that, no, this can actually hurt performance. So if somebody is exercising to improve their health, I think there is a, a big benefit to this. And I actually just have to, this is a tangent, but, but bring up the fact that I just did an interview a couple of days ago with Dr. Bredson, who he's about to publish his second book about Alzheimer's. And he has seen 
a whole lot of benefits in, in Alzheimer's patients using an intermittent fasting type protocol. He's particularly uh, big on the time-restricted feeding. Let's hear what Dr. Bredson has to say about the health benefits of fasting. Fasting turns out to be so incredibly helpful uh, for many things, you know, for your blood pressure, uh, for your, you know, for your, uh, for your glycemic control, for your lipids. It's, it's amazing how important and helpful routine fasting is. And you mentioned this in, uh, when I was reading your research. Uh, he talked about metabolic flexibility, which is the brain can use glucose and fat in the form of ketones for fuel, and you want it to be able to use both. And when you use uh, this, this time-restricted feeding, you can produce ketones and allow, give basically the brain both sources of fuel, and it seems to help with people who are having some sort of neurodegeneration or cognitive decline. But that, that's a tangent. But it's an interesting tangent. Um, one of the things that uh, we always struggle with when, when we're asked to, to kind of define, you know, what, what's your research area and what kind of populations do you work with? In some ways, I could be criticized for not being more focused, but I, I tend to work with across what we would maybe term the health performance spectrum. So we work with people who are metabolically impaired right through to, to those who are, are, are competing at the elite end. And part of my response to that is the fact that the mechanisms within the muscle are very similar in terms of adaptation to exercise um, and nutrition, regardless whether it's for a health benefit or for an actual performance better benefit. Now, the magnitude of those changes is, is, is very, very different between those two populations. But generally, the mechanisms of adaptation within the muscle, at least, are, are very, very similar. So it allows us to work on, on, on both those populations without kind of compromising our overall research area. So I, I would agree with your assertion around um, the use of uh, fasted exercise for, for certain health benefits. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence there for that. I think there is a lot of evidence there also in terms of driving the, the endurance phenotype within the muscle. Uh, and we'll get into that even, even in elite athletes. Um, the performance piece is a little bit more difficult, uh, a little more unclear. Uh, we see adaptations in, in elite athletes, but then it doesn't always translate to a, to a performance benefit in, in terms of our tests. And there are, there are um, certain reasons for that, which, which we, again, we might get into later in the conversation. So Dr. Carson, let's get into some of the molecular uh, science here, the molecular level. What is happening, metabolically speaking, during the, the fast Okay, so it's a good question. As the fasted uh, period extends, um, obviously our, our energy sources from exogenous sources, so from our meals, they begin to deplete, um, they begin to be removed from the blood and taken up into the, the relevant tissues. And as the fast extends, then what we'll see are an increase in availability of what we would call non-esterified fatty acids, so free fatty acids circulating uh, in the blood. We would also see some, um, some prevalence of some small ketone bodies would, would become available at that time, another kind of lipid source. And then we'd also see uh, glucose, which predominantly is coming. So blood, blood glucose is really tightly regulated, really tightly uh, maintained so that we don't become hypoglycemic. Uh, and that glucose would be supplied from liver glycogen and from gluconeogenesis in the liver. Um, and they're the predominant energy sources, which are prevailing uh, later on in the fast. The other thing that we'll probably see 
uh, present in the blood during the fasted period is, is the presence of catecholamines, principally norepinephrine and epinephrine. Um, and their function at this point in time, I guess, is, is to mobilize um, energy sources. So they'll be driving the lipolysis uh, of the adipose tissue, of the fat tissue, to release those non-esterified fatty acids um, into the bloodstream. They'll also uh, increase lipolysis in, in skeletal muscle to mobilize those energy substrates from things like the intramuscular triglycerides so that they're there uh, ready for use during that period and, and to maintain our, our normal metabolism throughout that facet period. And what we'll see then is, is an increased fatty acid utilization during that period. So if we were to measure something like your respiratory exchange ratio at that time, we'd see that we'd have a lower oreor which indicates that our fuel sources being used are predominantly from lipid uh, rather than carbohydrate. And um, if you were to provide a meal at the end of that fast, and um, you mentioned metabolic flexibility, what you'd see very quickly is the body would quickly move to, to utilizing the, the available carbohydrate coming from the exogenous source. So you'd see a quick shift in that respiratory exchange ratio. However, when we're talking about fasted exercise, obviously uh, we're not going to have that meal. So as we go to begin the exercise, what we have is high circulating fatty acids, some ketone bodies, and we have pretty normal basal uh, blood glucose at that point in time and uh, with the presence of some of the catecholamines in, in higher concentrations than normal. So at that point, then we go and we'll get into actually what's happening in terms of metabolism during the exercise bout. So because there's increased availability of those fatty acids, we'll see increased utilization uh, of fat sources. So we look at and we'll see increased fat oxidation coming from those free fatty acids, but also coming from the intramuscular triglycerides, which I, I mentioned earlier. We'd see decreased glucose oxidation um, during that period. So the increased utilization of fat as a fuel during, let's say, aerobic exercise, I'm going to refer to here for the cycling community, we'd see that predominant at lower intensity, so probably less than 70% of your VO2 max. So that would be what you guys probably consider a pretty uh, easy ride. And that would be your kind of long, easy ride at maybe 60 to 70% of your VO2. We'd see that increased fat oxidation. The evidence out there would suggest that this isn't overly influenced by time, that it's more influenced by the intensity exercise and by the training level of the participant. So the higher trained you are, the more fat oxidation that we would see um, during, that, uh, during that period. We would see across the exercise period, we'd see greater variation in glucose and insulin from pre to post in the fed state compared to the fasted state. So if we compare the same athlete having fed prior to exercise or uh, exercise while fasted, we would see greater variation in that pre-exercise glucose and insulin concentration to post-exercise and glucose and insulin concentration, suggesting greater glucose oxidation, which you would expect. And um, insulin is low in the fastest state, and that allows the mobilization of those uh, lipid resources. We wouldn't see um, any difference on the pre to post uh, non-esterified fatty acids um, in either condition. What you would see normally is in the first 15 minutes um, in the fasted state, you'd see those circulating fatty acids uh, come down because the demand is probably outweighing the supply there. 
And then over time, due to the increased lipolysis that's occurring, because there's no exogenous uh, energy availability, we actually see those fatty acids come back up because we're mobilizing those, those fats from the, from, the fat, uh, from the adipose tissue itself. We'd see uh, in the fed state there, because there's increased insulin, that will not happen because insulin will negate uh, lipolysis. Um, and you'll have the availability of glucose as a substrate in that fed condition. So there's the kind of contrast uh, between the two. In the fed state as well, you'd also have a, a decreased oxidation of those intramuscular triglycerides and, and an overall increase in carbohydrate oxidation. That would be fair to say. Let me just take a, a quick step back here to just to explain this to uh, some of our listeners who, who might be a little less familiar with this. The, the way to think about this is your body has a limited supply uh, of glucose and glyco so glycogen is a storage form of glucose and it wants to keep spare that glucose because it is still the primary fuel of your brain and your brain gets priority fats are essentially when you're talking about exercise your, your fat storage is unlimited so if you are in a fasted state, your body's basically saying, okay, now my limited store of glucose is getting even more limited. At this point, you've probably used up your, your liver glycogen. So your body goes in this mode saying, I've really got to spare that, that, that glycogen. I've got to spare that glucose. So it's going to ramp up your use of fats for fuel. In a fed state, you probably have just hit yourself with a whole bunch of carbohydrates if you're eating a, a normal meal, your body goes, okay, we got an availability. And we actually, we don't like to have too much glucose in the system. We like to keep it right at a certain point. So we're actually going to prioritize using this for fuel. Uh, and this is really directed, as you're saying, by, by insulin. When insulin is high, it says store fats, use glucose. When your insulin levels are low, it says spare the glucose, use fat. Is that a fairly accurate uh, kind of high-level summary of this? Uh, that's a really nice summary. Typically, the body will take, you know, if you like to think of it this way, the body will take the easy way out. So it costs us a little more in terms of oxygen to, to oxidize fats. So we tend to do that when we're at rest and when things are a little bit easier, when lots of oxygen is available and, and lots of energy is available. And then we also do that in, in periods where we haven't got exogenous sources like glucose readily circulating in the blood however as soon as you feed that glucose if you feed a bunch of carbohydrates you got you're going to have high blood glucose blood glucose and then you're going to have high insulin and basically what the body says okay well i've got these available this is very easy and it's much easier to oxidize these we're going to shift to this and that's part of that metabolic flexibility piece is the, is the ability to shift between these two so in, in very trained people, they've got that ability to a greater extent. So where carbohydrates are available, we'll always switch to this uh, glucose oxidation state. And I mentioned the respiratory exchange ratio that would increase at that time. But when we're fasting, we tend to have lots of these fatty acids available and because we've mobilized them and we'll predominantly use those and try and spare that glucose for when we might need it later. Um, for a kind of a fight or flight type um, incident or, or situation later on. So we'll try and preserve that uh, glucose and, uh, and muscle glycogen as best we can and use those fats which are, are readily available, which we've stored for periods like this. Yeah, so that's, that's a really good summary. Right. And another really important high-level thing to remember here is 
we don't actually directly use glucose or fat for fuel. Both are used to produce ATP, and ATP is what we, we ultimately use to, to produce our energy. Correct. Or sort of energy activity. It's important to remember that a fat molecule can produce a lot of ATP, upwards of 100 ATP, but it can't produce them quickly. It's, it's a slow process. Glucose doesn't produce a lot of ATP, but it can produce it really quickly. So if you are doing that high-intensity uh, type activity, explosive activity, you want to prioritize glucose. If you aren't needing energy quickly, but you need a lot of energy, like long, slow endurance rides, fat is great. Absolutely. So fat is more energy dense in terms of, as you pointed out, ATP. If you, if you think of um, glucose as almost like the convenience food in, in this scenario, when you need it fast and you need it easy, then, then glucose is going to be the preferred source. If you've got time and you've got uh, plenty of resources available, well, then you can, you can switch, to, switch to the fat. I think that's a, a good high level summary. One question I would have here for clarification's sake, if for no other reason, knowing the popularity of the ketogenic diet, these buzzwords that you've heard a lot of, we've mentioned ketone bodies. When you're talking about what we're talking about in this fasted state, to clarify, we're not talking about being in a state of ketosis. Is that correct? That's correct. A state of ketosis is going to take um, some time to develop. Um, and that wouldn't be the focus of, uh, of my own research or, or what we're, we're talking about today. What we're talking about are short-term periods of fasting, um, such as an overnight fast, somewhere between maybe 12 and 15 hours, probably at a, at a maximum, and then moving into exercise. Whereas something like ketosis is going to take uh, carbohydrate to be manipulated for a much much longer period than that for significant amounts of ketone bodies to develop to be used as a fuel source and um, even people who would uh, follow a low carb high fat diet would say that probably three weeks is the minimum um, in terms of, of getting an adaptation there to, to be able to use those ketone bodies successfully during exercise and so on so uh, no that, that would be what we're referring to here so uh, maybe we didn't finish our overview of the the metabolic processes here. I think we we left off maybe post exercise. Is that is that where you'd like to pick up, Brian? I'd just like to make one more point around during exercise, and it's 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 relevant for your listeners because many of them will undertake uh, long rides, which you know might go four to six hours. One of the things that we we'll see in a longer duration exercise is that after about two hours the substrate utilization between both a fed and fasted condition, it starts to move closer together. So, so they become more similar. Even in a low intensity ride, you're still using some glycogen. And if it's slightly higher intensity, you're going to be using enough glycogen for it to start to deplete. Um, not deplete completely, but where you're going to need to use um, some different fuel sources. So what we see is that the two conditions, the fed and fasted, start to migrate towards each other in terms of metabolism or start to look very similar in that you'll see increased fat oxidation uh, begin to occur in, in the fed state so that it now looks a little bit more like the fasted state. And that makes sense because if you think of what you've had in your, in your meal prior to exercise in the fed state, you started to use up those resources. 
And now you look similar um, to what uh, the athlete who began without breakfast, for example, uh, looks like after two hours. So they start to look more similar over time. Okay, well, so now we know what what uh, took place before your exercise, during your exercise. What's happening post exercise? We know what's going on during the exercise period. Now, in the in the post exercise period, in terms of metabolism, what you'll see again in the fastest state is you'll see a decrease in overall glucose oxidation. You'll see a decrease in the amount of insulin that's circulating. So those two things match up. Uh, there's less insulin circul- circulating, therefore we're less reliant on, on glucose. In the fastest state, again, compared to the Fed, you'll see an increase in those circulating uh, free fatty acids is still prevalent. And again, that matches up because uh, we see an increase in the number of catecholamines and the concentrations of catecholamines that are present. So again, they're mobilizing that fat resource. We see those increased free fatty acids. And then what we're going to see is an increase in fat oxidation in, in that fastest state and a decrease in glucose oxidation overall. Um, an interesting point, and, and, and sometimes we'll, you know, we might flip-flop between the, the, the healthy or the elite athlete right down to the metabolically impaired, but an interesting point in the post-exercise period is that when we look at uh, participants in research who are medically compromised, uh, most of these studies show no difference in glucose, insulin, or free fatty acids between the fasted and fed conditions after the exercise which isn't true in in the athlete population. So this is, we think, probably relates to that metabolic flexibility, which we've mentioned a couple of times, which is also influenced by training status and then also influenced by their body composition. So an increase in fat mass, a decrease in the amount of muscle mass in these metabolically impaired individuals. So they have poorer metabolic flexibility. So what they do is immediately they will still try and rely on that easy access, that easy resource of glucose oxidation. So it looks, even after fasted exercise, it looks similar to fed exercise in the post-exercise period in that we would see similar levels of glucose oxidation, similar insulin concentrations, similar fatty acid concentrations, and and similar reduced catecholamine concentrations in, in, in those particular individuals. And I think that's a really interesting point and that feeds into some of the confusion that you'll see in the literature. Uh, I mean, we had a, a systematic review and meta-analysis out in 2018. And I guess some of the findings are confounded by the different populations that are being uh, used in the, in the literature. So it's really important to, when you're interpreting any of these studies, to, to consider the population involved. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because uh, that was, I remember going through some of the literature this week and... Uh, that that really was very contradictory. So, for example, I have this 2015 study that Dr. Noakes was involved in where they showed uh, in recovery, they, they saw a reduction in inflammation. They saw a reduction in oxidative stress. But I think it was in your review where you saw post-exercise in a different population actually increase in uh, some of the inflammatory markers like IL-6. So... You, you can see very, very different responses depending on the population. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, these metabolically impaired, you're more likely to see that oxidative stress because their mitochondria are, are, are effectively not trained um, to complete this exercise without in, incurring damage. And um, one of the other things is just something to watch out for 
is around uh, immunosuppression when particularly when carbohydrate is low and again um, these populations might be a little bit more susceptible and uh, to that immunosuppression and their, their training status and their and their body composition has a lot to do with that so it's just an important consideration when, when we're looking at any of the literature in this area but just one more point i'd like to make about the the metabolism post-exercise and there's some really nice research and and i'll flag up this particular group for anybody who's interested in the area james betts and javier gonzalez at bath and and rob edinburgh who is one of their lead investigators at this time they have some nice studies but one particular study stood out to me in in that after exercise and this is again from the health perspective for those who might be looking to maybe improve their their metabolism or actually improve their body composition in some ways and one of the benefits that they observed uh, when they skipped breakfast and before exercise was that they found that their 24-hour energy balance was negative in the fasted exercise condition by about 180 calories compared to uh, breakfast before exercise so that was quite significant over that period and i guess the the energy expenditure there was combined between the exercise energy expenditure and the restricted energy intake by the omission of the particular breakfast. So the overall they ended up with a negative energy balance of around 180 calories. Well, it's actually about 400 calories, but it's about 180 calories more than the group who performed exercise but had their breakfast. So I think that's a really interesting finding. And for those who, who are listening and who are interested in, in their own metabolic health, I think it is a strategy which can be incorporated into an overall regime uh, to potentially improve those those markers. Agreed. It, uh, worth pointing out, I mean, you might say 180 calories, that doesn't sound like very much. I mean, I remember back in, in school when we were studying uh, obesity, going through study after study after study, showing that, that people who became obese, who hit uh, very unhealthy weights, uh, were, were only over-consuming by about 150, 200 calories per day. That, that sounds small, but over time, both for, for weight loss and weight gain, 150, 180 calories is actually quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a huge amount. So even the, the overall negative um, energy balance they achieved was, was about 400 calories, but that was about 200 of that came from the exercise itself. But the emission of the, of the breakfast, they didn't compensate for that in the rest of the day. I think that's the really important point. Often what we might assume is that, okay, they didn't have their breakfast, they did the exercise, but the, the meals throughout the day or the snacking, which might occur later on, um, might actually compensate and, and, and keep the body in energy balance. I will say that that was, that was an acute study. So um, again, we have to temper uh, our interpretation of the literature. But I think that group in particular um, at Bath are, are, are worth keeping an eye on. Their research are doing a lot of a lot of stuff around fasted type exercise and around breakfast in general. And um, so they're a really good group producing really high quality research. So uh, maybe it's time we turned our attention to what uh, a lot of listeners out there are probably dying to hear, which are these performance gains, the potential performance gains from taking up a regime, uh, a fasting regime, or the adaptation benefits. So let's let's dive into that. Great, and, and I'm sure all your listeners are, are really interested in this particular aspect of the talk. Um, the performance outcomes, um, and we'll kind of go through, I'll break this down, I guess, into more endurance, kind of aerobic performance, and then um, I'll talk a little bit about anaerobic performance as, 
much less evidence in, in, in the anaerobic piece, but I, I will come to that. And most of what I'm going to discuss here can be found in, in the review, which I mentioned by um, my former PhD student, Dr. Tom Aird, um, which we published in 2018. So what I'm discussing here is based on what we found in that particular review, and we conducted a meta-analysis of all the research in this area. Um, a couple of caveats before I get stuck in, and I might refer back to these if I need to, but uh, one of the caveats is that how performance is measured is, is very important. Um, so when your guys are talking about performance, you, you're really referring to you know, race day performance and, and, and getting over the line with your, with your wheel in front. Um, whereas a lot of the studies tend to look at things like time to exhaustion or um, which, which are not as relevant in terms of performance. They're, unless you're going to take part in an endurance race that sees who can last the longest, well, that's probably not appropriate. Um, so some of the measures um, are confounded by that, I would say, to a certain extent, whereas ones which focus on things like time trials, I would say, are, are better evidence. And um, the other issue that I think we often have is, um, and I'll kind of refer back to this when we talk about the, the adaptations, but is the sensitivity of the measure in the lab. Um, so how sensitive is the measure that's being performed and, and what have the researchers done to, to maximize the sensitivity of that? And, that? and that's based somewhat on the reliability of the measure. So if we measure your performance today and we measure the exact same conditions in seven days time, you know, how tight is, is the number that we're going to get from that? So what's the, the percentage error? What's the critical difference? What would be a meaningful change in performance? So uh, there are two of the caveats that I would have at the beginning. Uh, and, and that's a lot of labs will control that really well and um, as best they can. But there is always some um, level of error in there, which makes it difficult to tease out performance um, adaptations. Um, because what performance adaptation in Tour de France in, in terms of a stage win might be a win by a second or less than a second in a sprint finish, which is a really fine margin. Whereas we're looking for percentage increases um, over 20 kilometer or 40 kilometer time trials. So any loss of sensitivity there is, is, is difficult to, to overcome. So those caveats aside, what we found is for acute exercise. So if we exercise somebody in the fastest state and then we exercise them another day in the fed state an acute bout of exercise not a chronic training intervention most show a benefit for performance in the fed condition okay and and importantly what i should say here is there is no study showing a benefit of the fasted condition there are studies which show no uh, impact of the fasted condition but never a benefit greater than the fed condition if that makes sense it does that's entirely, entirely intuitive, entirely what we, we would expect and what we know about um, carbohydrate um, and performance. Um, for example, you know, there are lots of studies. I mean, there's a, a whole uh, bank of evidence around the importance of carbohydrate for performance. Um, you know, if, you've got, if you go into a, a race with low glycogen, then your performance is likely to be down somewhere between 10 and 20% over 90 minutes. So that's not an unexpected finding. Um, there are a number of studies, though, in, in, in terms of the positive, if you like, for facet-based uh, exercise where the, the performance isn't impacted. So if we look a little bit closer at that, um, when the challenge is greater than one hour in duration, uh, what we see is more of an effect for feeding. And again, this makes sense. So 
where the challenge is extended, where it's longer, where there, where it's more of a challenge, where uh, it might go beyond what your glycogen stores that you naturally have, and um, providing some exogenous fuel has been shown to be more beneficial. So in the analysis that we did within that that particular paper, what we saw was the effect size was greater when we looked at when we looked at studies which looked at performance outcomes which were greater than one hour in duration versus those which were less than one hour in duration. So again, that intuitively uh, makes a lot of sense. So the effect becomes stronger uh, the longer the duration of, of the exercise. So if you're going into, I mean, the take home there will be if you're going into a, a particular event that's going to last longer than an hour, then you absolutely should be fueling on the day of the event um, to, to perform to your maximum. And again, I, that's probably very unsurprising to your to your listeners. I imagine it is anyway. Right. Uh, however, when the performance outcome is less than an hour, in almost sixty percent of the uh, of the studies we looked at, uh, performance was not impaired by fasting. So, if you're in an event that's going to be less than one hour, and you see benefits for doing it in a fasted condition, maybe it's something like the GI discomfort we we mentioned earlier, then potentially you you're not negatively impacted. Um, in 60% of those cases. And the shorter it comes, I would say the less uh, need that you have for exogenous carbohydrate in advance of the actual uh, challenge. So that's a positive in terms of uh, those who might be interested in doing, um, in entering some competition in a fasted state. For your listeners though, uh, you know, feeding is going to be important uh, on days when you need to perform a competition. Uh, but also that's true for your training. And um, so, in terms of performance and training, when do we need to perform in training? We don't always need to perform, but we have different intentions or different goals for each training session that, that we're going to undertake. And on certain days, you, you might, for example, want to be doing a hard day. And that might include um, some thresholds or some hard type intervals uh, type work that you want to achieve. Um, and that particular session is going to be looking at really high intensity training. Well, then, in my view, and if that's extended particularly beyond the hour, in my view, then you need to be fueling appropriately for that training uh, session uh, and for that intention. So you need to be able to ride at the speeds that you want to ride in, in the race. Uh, you don't want that to be impaired in that particular session. However, if the goal of your session isn't so much about performance, if it's about maybe adaptation, uh, maybe it's a recovery ride, maybe it's a a kind of a longer ride and um, well then potentially the option to do that particular ride in, in the fastest state is, is one which you might explore but if you need to perform in the training session i would say that you should you should fuel for that training session and um, one of my colleagues at, at limerick and um, dr Catherine norton and um, her phd student marta cozier are working on on a term and around that intention and they call it peri-training nutrition so uh, try and fuel or, or use nutrition around the exercise session, around your intentions. And that's in the pre, during, and, and post period. So, so peri-training nutrition around that particular session and its intentions is, is really important. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop. That's W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Fast Talk at checkout to save 
Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're seeing that sort of direction in the research. I know what's, what's becoming popular is exploring this idea of doing your, your interval, your high-intensity session in the late afternoon or evening in a fed state then don't fully refuel, sleep, get up the next morning and do a low intensity session in a fasted state. Yeah, and, and that's been shown to be a pretty good model. I know James Morton and John Hawley have done research in that area and they, they would term some of maybe that peri-training nutrition. I mean, that's including all macronutrients, but they would talk about periodization of carbohydrates around training um, aligned to the intention of the of the particular session. Um, the idea that you would train maybe twice a day uh, makes sense and that you might fuel differently for each of those sessions makes sense. So I, I think um, I think John Hawley calls a model, it's a train high, sleep low. So that would be where maybe you have a, a session in the evening, which is a high quality session, um, whereby it would be high intensity and you should fuel appropriately for that particular session but that you might not fuel appropriately in the recovery from that session. So you might manipulate the carbohydrate in the diet and recovery, keep that carbohydrate low, sleep overnight in a low condition, and then move into a fasted exercise session the next morning, presenting a greater challenge uh, for that particular exercise session in the fastest state with low carbohydrate availability, low muscle glycogen stores, again, to drive that phenotype response and the endurance phenotype in response to that session the next day. Now, likely that session will be at a much lower intensity than the session the night before. Um, so that would be more of a recovery type session or extended uh, low intensity session, perhaps. One thing I would wonder there, and this maybe jumps, gets gets ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it seems like that's slightly dangerous. If you don't do that the right way, you might negatively impact your um, the benefits of the training bout. You might uh, prevent yourself from recovering well enough so that the subsequent days you, you aren't ready to ride again and, and it might be counterproductive. Is that is that true? Um, potentially. Uh, and if you were doing that continuously um, without maybe cycling it in and out of your uh, of your or your week or having it planned into your overall program and um, that could be the case but in the example I gave there so it's it's one hard training session the night before poor recovery if you like in terms of nutrition um, or suboptimal recovery in terms of nutrition and um, overnight and into a morning ride and what I was talking about there was more like a recovery, a recovery ride or an extended kind of low intensity ride. So you won't be fueled appropriately for that particular session. But after that, you would you would fuel appropriately. And then you perhaps that might be your only ride that day and you'll be ready to train again properly the next day. If you did that day on day on day, and then perhaps, yes, you're going to be compromised over time. And we talked a little bit, we mentioned a little bit about immunosuppression and so on. And likely... Your, the quality of your sessions will go down. But doing that maybe once or twice a week, uh, it might be, uh, you might be able to incorporate that. One thing here is very important and using periodization in, in another form here is the periodization of your training around your competition phase. So you probably do this type of work, I would say out of season or in pre-season. It's, it's not something you're going to be doing um, during your race season. 
um, during your race season, you're going to want to be fueling appropriately, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And um, just coming back on the performance in, in the fasted uh, state, I, I mentioned that there are an, uh, a few um, anaerobic type studies um, available in the literature at this time. And um, when we did the, the meta in 2018, there were four such studies available. Uh, and what we found was that uh, fasting, in, in most cases, um, didn't impair performance uh, during uh, anaerobic type exercise. Um, there is one study which showed that where you're doing perhaps a Wingate type exercise, and I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar, maybe they, they are, a Wingate is where you're looking to maintain a really high power output. It's an all-out um, bout of exercise for just 30 seconds. What you'll find is the peak power output, which occurs in the first four to five seconds of, of the 30, um, will be reduced when in the fastest state. But Overall, maybe the mean power output mightn't be uh, impacted across the 30 seconds. Most of those studies showed no impact on, on, on anaerobic performance. Now, part of that, and one caveat here is three of those studies were hit type studies. So they contained an interval. So where there was a period of, of recovery between each, uh, each particular high anaerobic bout, and that might play into it there so that the athletes were able to recover sufficiently in, in those intervals uh, to perform when the high intensity interval came back around again and to not be impaired. And we found that interesting and, and, and that uh, kind of formed the basis for some of the current work we're doing and, and, and some of the future work also, which I'm sure we'll come on to later on. Uh, but there's really very limited work in this area. So further research is required in this space. Uh, and, and as I said there, we might come back to that later on in the conversation. Yeah, so something I found really interesting in your review, talking about the Wingates, was that when athletes did a Wingate uh, workout, so as you said, a series of Wingates with, with recoveries between, uh, in a fasted state, you saw a ramping up of, of AMPK, of CERT-1, which are key pathways in... Uh, aerobic adaptations yeah and actually that that brings us on to the next part of the conversation i think really really well because we can talk about the adaptations to to training in the fastest state so what we've talked about now are kind of what happens just before the exercise during the exercise immediately post and and what happened in terms of our performance during that particular exercise bed but one of the main reasons is that people undertake fasted training, as we discussed at the very beginning, is to drive an adaptation towards an endurance phenotype. And as you said there, even in, um, in something like a Wingate, what you see is, and this would be typical anyway, you would see phosphorylation of the, the signaling kinases, such as AMPK, um, because you're basically turning over ATP. As soon as you start to turn over ATP and... and which results in ADP and AMP uh, being available, you'll phosphorylate AMPK. So that's not unexpected. And you'll do that in the facet or the fed state. Um, but it seems to be augmented in, in, the, in the facet state, which is really, really interesting. Um, there are a number of other signaling kinases that we activate in pathways that we activate, um, such as P38 MAP kinase, um, P53 has become a more... Uh, recent discovery seems to be important 
um, calcium calmodulin kinase 2 or CAMK2, um, and something like ACC, uh, which is really a surrogate of, of AMPK, but is involved in, in switch between carbohydrate and fat metabolism. Um, and those signaling cascades are all activated by exercise. And in somewhat, some ways, they're somewhat augmented by doing that in a fasted state. And a lot of those pathways converge around um, a transcriptional coactivator called PGC1-alpha. You know, it, it used to be coined, or it still is a lot of the time, it, it coined as this kind of master regulator of metabolism in, in the muscle. Uh, because it's a transcriptional coactivator and its transcription is linked to, to increased transcription of other uh, metabolic genes and that's why it was considered this kind of master regulator but there's, there's some recent evidence which is kind of refuting that role in that there's some uh, I guess other pathways to that if we knock out pgc one alpha for example in animal models we can still get up regulation of these other genes so there's there's pathways which can step in if pgc one alpha isn't there in abundance but uh, that's an aside so a lot of these pathways converge around pgc1 alpha and as i said it kind of coactivates um, and regulates the transcription of a lot of other uh, genes associated with metabolism in the muscle and some of those are things like nrf1 and nrf2 uh, mef2 tfam and pdk4 which is uh, really easy to manipulate with exercise and um, because it acts as a, a little bit of a switch but in fuel metabolism and um, between carbohydrate and fat so in the post-exercise period you'll see pdk4 upregulated to a huge extent and what you're seeing in that post-exercise period if you haven't fed is obviously a switch to to fatty acid oxidation um, and that's that's aligned to that and um, some of the other genes in, related to fatty acid oxidation would be, which are regulated by PGC1-alpha are PPAR delta, um, which is very important, and CPT1, CD36, which are, uh, I guess, fatty acid transporters to an extent, and, and UCP3. And then what you see then is, so we see this milieu of different genes upregulated and it, their upregulation is transient, usually peaks somewhere around three hours after the exercise bout, um, and then can be manipulated by the availability of nutrients. So some of these are augmented. For example, we, we've seen in our own research, this isn't published yet, uh, impacts on PPAR delta, on NRF2, and on CD36, uh, which are augmented in the fastest state compared to a, a pre-carbohydrate feed and with high intensity interval training or a better term being here sprint interval training um, so some of the this kind of milieu is very transient it's up about three hours we back down probably around 12 hours after the exercise and any effect would disappear and the idea would be that over time that you're transiently increasing these genes you're increasing the copying of these the production of these proteins and over time you'll see accretion of these proteins in the muscle and that they will exert their function then in the muscle. So a lot, these genes are all associated with both lipid and carbohydrate oxidation and ultimately mitochondrial biogenesis. So increasing both the number and content of the mitochondria, which as you mentioned earlier, are going to be where we produce our ATP or where we convert our, our fuels such as our fats and carbohydrates into ATP, which the muscle can actually use. What we also see then when we look in these mitochondria is we see markers of these mitochondria, uh, such as citrate synthase, uh, 
are increased. Um, and citrate synthase is an enzyme as part of the TCA cycle, um, so very important in the production of um, ATP. And then we also see increase in markers um, associated with fatty acid oxidation, such as uh, beta-HAD. So both of their content is upregulated. And what we've found, and again, I'm hand-waving a little bit because this research hasn't been reviewed by uh, my peers as yet. Um, we're still preparing the papers and we're doing some kind of follow-up analyses to, to better describe the mechanisms. But when we compare the FASA condition to the Fed condition, we see more, uh, we see better upregulation of those two markers of mitochondrial biogenesis and fatty acid oxidation um, when we exercise without carbohydrate um, for in, in, in a sprint interval training model. So over a period of three weeks, so in, in a very, very short period, just nine sessions. So they're quite interesting findings and, and we hope to get those into a, a good journal maybe later this year. They're the type of adaptations we're interested in. And, and overall, what they, I, I suppose, espouse is that greater endurance phenotype. And even though I'm referring to sprint interval training there, those adaptations will be important for endurance performance also. So to take the big step back, basically the, the, the one two-sentence summary of this is even taking something like a Wingate. I mean, a Wingate is used to, to test your, your anaerobic power. It is a, a sprint workout. It, you, you, you are doing that anaerobically. Uh, even doing that sort of workout in a fasted state, what you're seeing is this big ramp up of all of your aerobic machinery. Uh, and seeing greater adaptations in the aerobic machinery. That, that would kind of be the, the one, two-sentence summary of all this. It, it, exactly that. Is one way I describe, because um, this happens very early in my, in my first-year module uh, on, on our sports, sport and exercise sciences degree, um, we talk about transcription and translation. And what, what I tried to say to the students, to put it at more high level, is that Effectively, the body is very good at adapting. Um, so when you, uh, when you challenge the muscle today with a particular exercise challenge, it's, it's not very good at it if you've never done it before. And, but it's very smart. And it, it says, well, hang on a second. What, why couldn't, what was he asking me to do one? And, and why couldn't I do it to the level he wanted to do it? So what I didn't have was I didn't have this thing off the shelf. I didn't have this and I didn't have this. And if I had those, I'd have been better able to do what he was asking. So I need to make more of these. And, and that starts immediately after the first exercise bout. So we start transcribing the DNA uh, to, to develop these genes, to produce more of these genes, to then eventually produce more of the, the proteins associated with them so they can exert their function. Uh, that machinery is then there. So when you come to exercise in, in three, four weeks' time after you've done this repeatedly, you have more of these things that you need available, and therefore you can actually uh, conduct the exercise or, or uh, to you can perform the exercise better to a higher level. That, that'll be kind of the, the overall summary that, that I would give there. We've had Dr. Inugo San Milan, the head physiologist for UAE, on the show many times now. We asked him about facet training, and he had a great point about all these adaptations we may be seeing. Yes, we are seeing increases in RNA transcription, but does that mean we're actually seeing adaptations? So we are going to do a, a show on intermittent fasting. So I'll just hit you with the, the big question. What's your feeling about using intermittent fasting in, in training? Helpful, not helpful, really makes no difference? 
well, in my opinion, it might it might be detrimental. Um, this is from what what I have seen in athletes. Uh, it, it goes back to the restriction, right, of of, uh, of fuel, right. That's kind of the intermittent fasting, and uh, there there are a few studies showing that. Um, yeah, I think it's it's maybe like a, if you will, a more elaborated than the uh, carb train 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 law compete high of, of restricting carbohydrates, right? Um, and energy, but that that's that's not a good idea, in my opinion. Uh, one of the things that are, there are a few studies showing that, for example, restricting carbohydrates might increase um, the transcriptional activity of those genes related to mitochondrial biogenesis, right? But but they don't show those studies, uh, and they are very sexy and elaborated studies. I made no mistakes. But but one thing is to show an increase in the RNA activity of that transcriptional capacity of uh, for different my, um, uh, mitochondrial um, precursors, and the other thing is actually to demonstrate through transcriptomics, or I mean sorry through proteomics to 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 see that the protein is being formed. The studies are not there yet. Right, um, and so we're still at that RNA transcriptomics level, which is the signal, right? And and that's why it, it's very easy then to malinterpret that data and say, oh, see, this data shows that people who go out there and uh, they don't eat carbohydrates, they're uh, you know uh, mitochondrial biogenesis precursors of the gen- uh, transcriptional activity increases. Therefore, uh, they're going to increase mitochondrial function, but not necessarily. Only about forty percent of the RNA is uh, tri- um, um, it's transcribed into protein, right? So we not might we might not have the right um, threshold, right? I, and I always see the same analogy with HIF one. HIF one, uh, as, as, as you guys know, is the is the uh, precursor of, uh, of erythropoiesis, right? And EPO, right? So uh, it's key, and that that responds to oxygen. And in fact, it's it's cool, so cool that last year's uh, Nobel prizes, the three ones, were because of the work they have done in HIF one. So, if you are for 20 minutes in a very hypoxic environment, your HIF one is going to be is going to go up the chart, off the charts, really high spike, high increase in HIF one. Now, are you going to increase red blood cells? because you were 20 minutes in hypoxia? No, you're not, right? So, so this is kind of what's happening at these levels of mitochondria function, right? Uh, so I think that, uh, that we need to understand this a little bit better, you know? We talked about this before on the show, that in humans, there's no such a thing as a purely anaerobic muscle fiber. All fibers are able to at least do some work aerobically. So even when you're doing this big, hard, short effort, if you're doing it in a glucose-sparing state, as you said, the muscle's going to go, well, hey, you're asking me to do this big work. I can't really do it right now uh, using glucose, using pure anaerobic machinery, so I better ramp up that aerobic machinery. Absolutely, Um, because they're all, most, even most of the type 2s are mixed uh, fibers anyway so they've got mixed function they're, they're glycolytic but they can also do uh, a certain amount of aerobic or they've got a certain aerobic capacity so you're absolutely right there um, it's somewhat counterintuitive in that why would doing very short sprint interval type training 
require nutrients, how would that offer a bigger challenge? You're not going to deplete the glycogen stores given the volume of work that's, that's there. It's perhaps in the recovery period or perhaps it's um, in the interval between. Um, we're not 100% sure at this point. Um, I can just say that in our hands that, that we've had um, a differential effects um, um, between fast and fed uh, in this particular model. Um, we've actually looked at 25 mitochondrial uh, genes in, in, a, in a multiplex assay which we developed. So we're interested in or We're very keen for people to see those findings in time. There's a few new players in there as well. So what I went through were probably the classics that, that you'll see in an awful lot of the studies. And anybody who's up with the literature will, will have known all of those uh, genes that I mentioned. But uh, maybe an understudied cohort, and they're related to one that you mentioned a few moments ago, CERT1, but they're involved in NAD metabolism. So NAD biosynthesis and, and NAD uh, scavenging in the electron transport chain. Um, so we see a couple of particularly interesting genes which haven't been shown to be regulated by sprint interval training and, and have never been shown to be uh, regulated by fasting versus feeding, including things like NAMPT, NNMT, uh, CERT4. Uh, and chronically then we're seeing changes more like in NRF2, NAMPT and, and PPAR Delta uh, differentially between the fasted and fed conditions. So uh, again, I'm hand-waving a little bit this will all have to go under scrutiny, but uh, there are some of the results that, that we've seen in our hands, at least. We'll be very excited to read your study when it comes out. Yeah, hope, hopefully hopefully it gets in, in somewhere nice and it comes out uh, probably later in the year because there is some uh, more mechanistic work that we're doing just to try and um, explain um, what exactly what's going on in terms of the metabolism. So, Dr. Carson, you, you brought up the the impact on, on fat metabolism. What a what about the impact on glucose metabolism, whether positive or negative? It's an interesting question um, because we talked about the adaptations. We're talking about changes in markers of both lipid and carbohydrate oxidation and, and then being increased um, over time. But there's a, there's a slight paradox in, in the literature, at least, in relation to performance um, in that one thing that you might not expect is, or well, sorry, that you might expect is, over time um, with faster training is that you actually increase the, the muscle glycogen store. Um, so there's more glycogen there and, and glycogen is so associated with, or muscle glycogen stores are so associated with uh, improved endurance and aerobic performance. You think that that has to be a benefit, but actually some of the research out there and uh, as shown and, and, and some, I think is uh, a paper by Yo et al in 2008 have shown that, even despite this uh, higher glycogen store, actually there is some reduction in the ability to, to, to oxidize glucose sometimes um, after a period of fasted training. Um, what athletes find difficult then or in the performance tests is uh, we don't see differences in performance, maybe because they can't access that glycogen store to the same extent. We're not seeing that same level of carbohydrate oxidation. So that's one of the potential reasons why we don't see uh, maybe the a difference in performance between fasted and fed training after a specific period in the in in, in the research. And for, for all those uh, listeners out there that say we we don't get in deep into the science, I hope those acronyms, those many genes we uh, Brian just listed off, are, are satisfactory. Should be, I guess, the three. And so for those who might not um, want to listen to all those gene names and 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 that just 
went over their head, it probably could divide them into three biological functions associated with the ability to oxidize lipids, uh, the ability to oxidize carbohydrates, and then the ability to either scavenge or synthesize NAD, which is important in, in the electron transport chain uh, for production of ATP. Yeah. I mean, basically, the, the short summary of what I am hearing from everything you're saying is you are seeing genes involved in all sides of aerobic metabolism from your ability to use fats, which is the, the primary aerobic fuel, all the way through the Krebs cycle to the, you know, the, the, the end stage, the electron transport chain. You're, you're seeing genes upregulated at, at all stages. So, I mean, it's, it's really hitting all sides of your aerobic metabolism. Absolutely. And, 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 and again, it's, it's probably not surprising in some ways, but what, what might be the bit more surprising bit is that the facet is, is driving that adaptation to a greater extent. That's probably, um, that's, that's the bit that's probably surprising to more people. Um, again, exercise is going to do that all the time. So it's important to remember in all this, we can sometimes get taken away with the nutrition. Uh, the exercise is king here. And the exercise is, is the main driver of, of, of all of this response. Um, and then I guess the nutrition is just trying to optimize it uh, as best we can. Um, it's like some of this is uh, driven as well by uh, the glycogen availability. And that's where, uh, you know, the model you talked about earlier uh, in terms of that kind of train high and then sleep low. For example, if you have low glycogen availability, that, that enhances the phosphorylation of AMPK, for example, which is, which is the, the first signal transducer. Um, that's where the signal starts. That's then transduced at the level of PGC1-alpha. It coactivates a number of genes, and then we see these, these other outcomes. Whereas things like free fatty acid availability, which we also associate with, with fasting, would phosphorylate things like ACC, um, and also P38 uh, MAP kinase. So again, at, at the top of the chain, that's, that initial signal is being augmented. And then what we're seeing is that translated down through the levels in terms of the transduction of that signal and then the translation into a, a, an overall outcome. Yeah, so you mentioned, Dr. Carson, a little bit about the, the, you know, some of your current research. What are the, the next questions that you want to look at here? What's the, what's the future hold? And so I'm still interested in the, the manipulation of these nutrients around the, the exercise bout and, and particularly in this pre-exercise period. Um, so one thing we might be interested in is rather than necessarily a fasted type exercise, um, exercise potentially without carbohydrate, but with other macronutrients involved. Um, so one thing that we see in the literature is that particularly endurance athletes, and this isn't always associated with endurance athletes, but they actually have a higher requirement for protein um, than your, your, your normal person or your Joe public, and particularly elite athletes. They have a higher requirement uh, for protein, even though their sport is, is endurance-based. So one thing I'm considering is looking at um, a protein feed prior to exercise. So a similar model where we come to the exercise session after an overnight fast, but we don't provide any carbohydrate perhaps, and we provide a, a small amount of protein. Um, because what we have seen is some of these uh, mitochondrial genes that I mentioned earlier on, we've seen that these can actually be impacted by protein supplementation in, 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 in vitro models initially, but also 
in vivo because effectively the, the protein is going to provide the, the amino acids which are the building blocks for for these particular um uh, proteins so once we increase transcription and then translation into into these proteins they require these amino acids so almost giving them the substrate to do that in, in advance of uh, the exercise bout and um, but without having the blunting effect which carbohydrate seems to have on the expression of these genes so i think that's a road that i would like to investigate a little bit more there's not a lot done in in this particular area um, and there are some suggestions in a couple of reviews that uh, pre-protein uh, feeding prior to endurance exercise uh, might be beneficial um, there is, is some evidence to say that you know some of the amino acids will be uh, utilized during the actual exercise period but I would like to see how it, how it impacts um, the, the adaptive response uh, over time. That's, that's somewhere where I think I'll probably go next with this piece. You said that carbohydrates has a blunting effect on this gene expression. Is it the carbohydrates themselves that are directly having that effect, or is it uh, insulin? Because consuming protein will also raise insulin. Yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, so far, we, we don't know. So what we see... What we know is once carbohydrates have been provided that we see this blunting, I guess, in the response or an augmented response when carbohydrate isn't present. And whether that's down to insulin or not, we, we haven't actually investigated in humans. It potentially has an impact. And you're absolutely correct. With um, provision of protein, we'll see postprandial uh, insulin increase. Um, so that could have an, an effect on the utilization of, of fats as a fuel as intramuscular triglycerides as a fuel or as uh, muscle glycogen as a fuel. Um, so we know less in this area, but because we know less, I guess that's an area that we can explore a little bit. I do have one question for you that actually isn't really related to fasting, but this was something that I saw in your review that I, I found really interesting, uh, which is you, you did talk a bit about, okay, if you're going to train in a fed state, some of the things that you saw that were beneficial and not beneficial. And one thing that, like I said, really caught my attention was eating a low glycemic index meal versus a high glycemic index meal prior to, to exercise or an event. Yeah, what was it that you saw there? There were a couple of studies that um, they had different groups or they had different conditions for, where they had both low and high GI and it seems that the high GI um, condition would have resulted in uh, a slightly different outcome, a, a less favorable outcome. So the low glycemic index seemed to have a more favorable outcome in, in those particular studies um, for both performance and, and adaptation. Um, that, that would be what we've seen, but there's very little research on that. I think that's based on maybe two studies. So there's a little bit more scope um, for some research in that area. Well, yes, I do have one one final question for you, Dr. Dr. Carson. I realize this is um, putting you on the spot a bit, calls for uh, some speculation. I know you're a scientist first, not a, not a cycling coach. I know there's a lot of research still to be uh, conducted when it comes to fasting uh, and exercise in a fasted state. But I'm sure there are people out there saying, okay, this sounds great. I mean, there, there are potential performance gains. There's potential adaptations. How do I get the most out of this? So if you can, could you design a 
protocol or a regime for our listeners. Uh, I realize there's a lot of factors there, um, but how many times should people be doing this per week? Uh, what part of the season, perhaps, should they be uh, trying this? And when, when should they avoid it? And, you know, what does it look like uh, on a particular day? Um, how fasted, quote-unquote, how fasted should they be? Uh, how long should they remain fasted after the, the bout of exercise? And, and so forth. I know that's a, that's a long question with a lot of facets, but hopefully you can uh, take it away and give us, give us some recommendations there. Thank you. There's, there's quite a bit in that, all right. And I'm glad you uh, outlined um, that it's, it'll have to be a speculative piece. Um, you know, as you said, I'm not a cycling coach. Um, I am a scientist. So uh, we always do well to, to link with the, the applied practitioners. And I think the, the more we can do that, the better. But I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to, to, to maybe answer the question. I'd say I'll start with the, the periodization of, of the season in terms of training. I think if you were to ask me when in the season that it would be best for uh, athletes to engage in this type of facet training, I think we're probably in their off season or in the, in their preseason phase. Um, so for me, that would be the best time. Um, when they're right in the middle of their competition phase, I would suggest that this that's probably not the time um, for them to engage in this practice uh, too much at that point. Um, they'd want to be fueling um, for what's required for their competition at, at all times so i would say early in early in the season is the time to, to explore these type of training and um, how often i think there's scope to do this um, probably at least two times per week but up to maybe three um, sessions per week um, and those sessions could be varied in what they look like so if you planned a, a recovery ride i think that's a pretty optimal time to to engage in this so where you don't have a huge intention for the ride in terms of you're not trying to do hard and fast work it's maybe a more longer in duration and but lower intensity i think that is somewhere which you could target in in your overall program to to introduce a fasted session another area which you could explore i think is is um some of the anaerobic type work. So I mentioned a little bit about our own work and that there's, there's I suppose, there's minimal enough research in this area. But, and obviously as cyclists, you know, you're mostly aerobically focused, but there are periods where, you know, your anaerobic metabolism is really important within the race. That's a very obvious period uh, at the finish, but there are periods where maybe tactical moves need to be covered or specific hills need to be attacked and um, where this might be important. So if you have planned maybe a short, uh, rate, a short training session, which was focused on training the anaerobic system, because the overall load of that session is not high, the overall energy demand um, and probably the time involved is not high, I think based on our own research um, on sprint interval training, I think that is a session that you could target uh, within the week. So I think two to three, maybe one recovery ride, one type of anaerobic session, and, and maybe one other uh, type of session during the week. I think that would be the amount, and again, the timing being more early in the season, uh, just to try and drive that adaptive response um, and that endurance and phenotype early in the phase. And then when you get closer to your competition, uh, focus on fueling for what's required. Um, I guess they would be my general recommendations uh, if, if there was something for you to take away from this. 
Yeah. And a question for maybe both of you guys, given your experience here, Trevor, um, and your your research, Dr. Carson, when somebody, so say somebody wants to try this, um, they decide, okay, easiest way for me to do this is I'm going to, you know, have a meal, uh, have dinner, uh, not eat anything the rest of the night, uh, sleep, wake up, no breakfast, go for a ride, uh, sort of easy to, to incorporate that into the routine. Uh, so if somebody has a two-hour ride planned the next morning, I would assume that would be you'd want to ride the entire ride. You could have your water, but try to limit any, anything else for, for intake. What if you had a, a four-hour ride or a six-hour ride? Is it practical? Is it possible to get to that point? Is there a, a transition period where you need to quote-unquote work up to that? where you're able to, um, again, just have water and nothing else for up to that length of ride? Or should people try to do such a thing right off the bat? Okay, so there's a couple of parts to the question. And one was maybe you have your dinner the night before, and what's the period of fasting before the exercise session? And what I recommend is that the period of fasting be kind of a minimum of 10 hours, closer to 12 if possible. So that looks like you know maybe having your your dinner pre eight o'clock and then and then exercising pre eight a.m. the following morning. I, I think something like that would be uh, suitable. Um, if you're talking about some of the earlier strategies um, around intermittent fasting or alternate day fasting, uh, you know the idea that you would do it maybe on the alternate day when you were fasting that would be highly appropriate any time before you within that modified period between 12 and 2 so somewhere before midday effectively to, to conduct the exercise but there's a bit of work to be done there in terms of the duration of the fast and, and what timing of the day uh, exercise might come in and there's a lot coming out around chronobiology and the clock genes and when we might optimally time exercise and nutrition so there's a little bit of work to be done there the, the next part of your question was around um you know during the exercise so Let's say we don't have breakfast and, and we take off into the exercise bed. Should we have anything during the exercise bed? And if it's two hours, then I think I don't think that that's a requirement. And one thing I'd actually, again, this isn't maybe empirically proven, but one thing that I would consider, and we did this in some of the research that I've conducted, is we left a period of time after the exercise bed in the recovery where we didn't feed because there is there are studies which weren't designed to look at fasted versus feeding and, but they fed in that post exercise period and they saw a little bit of blunting of the gene expression of some of the genes we mentioned earlier and at three hours as a result. And so just taking that evidence, I I think if you can leave it an hour after the exercise bed, I think that is uh, beneficial. But again, how convenient is that for you? You're going to have to factor into and how do you feel? I also think, What's very important here before I go on is how does the athlete feel themselves? If they don't feel comfortable, then they should eat. <laughs> and you then asked about, you know, a longer ride, five to six hours. I think that would be difficult after an overnight fast. Um, and maybe some of your listeners are, are already doing that and, and, are, and are having no issues with that at all. And if they are, then, um, then 
then it should be no problem for them. And it may be somewhat individualized. I think their, their training status will have an impact on that. And the intensity of that ride over those six hours is definitely going to have an impact on that. Um, I don't think you'd be able to go into a post-exercise period and not eat um, for another hour. So I would say maybe in the later stages of that, um, that you're looking to have some type of fuel, whether that's a carbohydrate meal or not, um, will be up for debate as well. But again, the research to date is not in place to, to support um, anything that I'm saying here. This is very much uh, speculation. Uh, understood, understood. But thank you for, for, for taking that step. <laughs> I know it's hard for scientists to do that. You asked both of us, and I'm just going to give a, a bit of an experiential side because I did uh, experiment with this a bit myself. Uh, when I saw that, that this idea of fasting was becoming pretty popular, I, I did my usual coach thing and said, well, before I recommend this to any of my athletes, I'm going to try it. Uh, it actually did it for a while. So I'll tell you my experience, but my experience is pretty consistent with what I've heard from other coaches who have used it. And the, as you said, there isn't much in the research yet, but it's the little bit that's in the research tends to match up with, with what I experienced. So starting with the, the timing, I tended to do the, the time-restricted approach or that, that alternate day approach where I just ate very little in a day. Definitely you want to use that overnight fast. For me, I can't sleep if I don't eat soon before I go to bed. So I tried the have dinner and then don't eat for four hours before sleeping, and I just had insomnia. Uh, so what worked for me was the fast while you sleep and then get up in the morning, don't eat anything, and I wouldn't eat until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was fine with that. My brother tried it. He was the exact opposite. He just might like to not eat at night but have a big meal when he woke up. I did just because uh, why not? tried doing some of my fasting days on Tuesdays because I had a big training race that I love to go to on Tuesdays. And so it was about an hour and a half, two hour training race and found very quickly the, the first time I did that where I, I went to it in a completely fasted state, I lasted about 20 minutes and I was seeing stars, but kept at it. And there was some sort of adaptation uh, after a couple weeks of that, I was able to do most of the race. But what I was never able to do is when we got to that final five, 10 minutes where the pace got lifted up, guys were attacking, they were getting ready for the sprint, I was out the back instantly and was never able to find that, that really high intensity. Uh, so that's consistent with the, the research that Dr. John Hawley was doing saying, yeah, you, you'll lose that top end. Uh, last thing I will point out is I did once try the six hour ride in a fasted state without eating and it was absolutely miserable. <laughs> yeah. I would I'm imagine surprised. so. Yeah. It didn't sound good to me anyway. No, my, and my, what I really noticed, I was able to struggle through it, but if uh, maybe there were some gains from it, but its impact on my recovery was so dramatic, I would never do it again. There's also the, the, the fact that I mentioned earlier that after two hours of exercise, even in the fed state, we, we, as I said, we start to see that both the fasted and fed conditions migrate towards each other, um, whereby those exogenous fuels have been, have been used up to an certain extent and to a certain extent, and the, the fed state now starts to look like the fasted state. So 
perhaps you know doing fasted exercise for six hours is, is probably excessive you know you, you you probably see four hours of your six looks like the fastest state even when you fed and um, so there might be no additional benefit of, of doing that and it probably it doesn't seem sensible to me to to, to probably recommend that someone going to a six-hour ride fasted right right I'll also add, I mean, so I had the, okay, I'm going to fast, I'm going to do my six hour ride fast. And then I had a certain point where I said, I can eat. And when I got to that point, I wasn't a scientist. I wasn't a coach. I was a starving human being. And I called up the pizza place that had the biggest pizzas I knew of and ordered a a large pizza and wolfed that down and then just kept eating the rest of the day. Jason McKeldine, a professional mountain biker and host of the Adventure Stash, shared his thoughts with us on fasted training and whether he feels there are benefits. Have you ever dabbled in or do you are you a believer in intermittent fasting at all? I had an interesting conversation on my podcast about this recently. Uh, for, for one, I mean, I think we all do because we sleep at night <laughs> and most people don't sleep while they're or eat while they're sleeping. So, um, I think we uh, we all fast to an extent in that regard. Um, sometimes it's a little funny to me that we glorify this idea of fasting when we our first meal of the day is literally called breakfast. But point being, um, I haven't gone too aggressive with that. I haven't done any full days, multiple days, anything like that. Um, not because I don't necessarily... Um, think it doesn't work, but just because I haven't been intrigued by it enough to do that. That said, I do think it's healthy psychologically as much as anything else to get in kind of a challenging place calorically now and then, or a fueling place now and then. Um, uh, a friend of mine, also a Red Bull athlete, Sasha DeJulian, who's one of the top climbers in the world, Um, we were chatting recently about how it's kind of funny how so frequently we just micromanage our caloric intake. You know, we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the, on the bike or exercising, you know, start early, eat often every 30 to 45 minutes if you can. And we get so tied up in in the minutia of all this stuff that we forget what our bodies can do when things go sideways. So in her sport, when power to weight is even more critical than cycling probably because she's hauling it straight up a vertical face. She'll take very little fluids and very little food um, just and, and be fine. You know, she'll go for a day and eat like 500 calories while exercising the whole time. And once she comes down, yeah, you're not very comfortable and you're super thirsty and super hungry, but it's fine. And you got, you got the climb done. Um, and so, I think from obviously not from from a performance standpoint, it doesn't make sense to do that when you're trying to race a bike fast. But um, I think it's probably good to be a little bit flexible and resilient psychologically. So in the off season, um, sometimes you know you you're doing a really big high country ride, and and I don't necessarily do it on purpose, but you run out of food and you run out of water um, with three hours to go, and you just get through and you get to eat a bigger meal when you get home. It's, it's not too big a deal. So obviously from a performance standpoint, I stay away from that. I haven't done much in the way of fat adapted training or, or gotten into that Hmm. can of worms, but, um, will you, yeah, I know that what I said was a little 
tangent, but that's kind of my only yeah, experience. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you ever get up, not eat breakfast, and go for rides or do workouts just for that experience? And if so, do you see benefits to that? Well, like we were talking about earlier, yesterday I did because I rolled out of bed 20 minutes before my gym workout <laughs> <laughs> and there wasn't time to eat breakfast, but uh, not really intentionally. Um, I was talking to, I know you've had uh, Sepp Kuss on before and he's one of yeah. my good buddies. We kind of grew up racing. We're on the same team for a couple of years as juniors and he sort of laughs <laughs> about the whole fasted training thing to an extent. He he told a story on my podcast one time where um, at one point his team was having him do a two egg ride, he called it, where basically when he was quite fit um, from a, a you know energy economy standpoint, um, he ate two eggs for breakfast, nothing in the way of carbs, literally just like fried eggs, and then got on the bike and did a five-hour ride nothing uh, gnarly in terms of intensity, just five hours aerobic. Obviously, he bonked like crazy, um, and you just push through. And he said he's not sure that sort of training works because then you go home and just like, wow, <laughs> right, food. Should people actually feel different, or are these adaptations taking place such that they're happening sort of behind the scenes and you're gaining from them, but it's not extremely apparent in the moment. No, it, it shouldn't be terribly apparent in the moment. Maybe the, the RPE um, your kind of perceived exertion might be a little bit harder, but if, if it's below a kind of a 70% VO2 max or the threshold, um, it shouldn't be a huge impact. You shouldn't feel terrible and, and i said that depends on how the athlete feels if, if they don't feel good they probably shouldn't do it and um, so a lot of these changes you know what i'm talking about at the molecular level we, we won't know they're going on and it's, it's a slightly different challenge is, is what i would say for the muscle and um, so it shouldn't be something overly uh, dramatic and um, so no it, it shouldn't feel terribly different i wouldn't think so dr carson you're you're new to the program uh, but I, I know that you're going to be able to do this well. You've been a great guest, very eloquent, uh, given us a lot of great things to uh, digest and think about here. Our take-home messages, one minute on the clock. What are the most important messages you think people should take from this episode on exercising while fasted? Okay, thank you, and thanks again for having me on. If I were to pull together a few take-home messages I would say that facet exercise is a potential tool for, for you to have in the toolbox uh, for your overall training regimen. Um, some of the benefits associated with it are the ability to manipulate uh, substrate utilization during exercise, whereby you move towards a greater contribution um, from lipid sources um, and a sparing of your glucose sources and your, and your muscle glycogen for later in, in the exercise period. Um, the other aspect of fasted training, which I think is really important and which the, the research definitely supports, is the, the driving of a, an endurance phenotype in the adaptive response. We see an increased muscle glycogen store, uh, increased markers of mitochondrial content and function, and increased markers and enzymes that are associated with lipid and carbohydrate oxidation, um, which are really important for, for exercise and overall performance. Um, 
I think they're the key uh, take-homes for me in, in terms of practical application. Um, like I said, this is something which you should have in your toolbox, um, which you might use a couple of times a week in your training or predominantly use that in, in the off-season or early pre-season uh, during competition phases, focus on fueling uh, for the, the, the exercise required. Um, I think they're the key things that, that I would take home from our conversation today. Excellent. Trevor, what, what do you got? I think the, the important thing to point out here is research on fasting, both for health and for performance, is very, very new. And Dr. Carson, thank you for doing a lot of that research. Uh, but it is important to point out that, well, there are indications that it has an, an impact on adaptations, that there seems to be an indicator that it, it helps with health. We're still very early. There's still a lot of questions. There's still a lot that we don't know. So my one minute is be careful. There, there was a reason I started at the beginning of this uh, whole conversation with you know, some of the ways these things can go bad, where I, I've talked to people on the nutrition side who have read in the research that, hey, there, there's health benefits to fasting for a day. And then there were a few studies that said, hey, if you do two days in a row of fasting, it seems to amplify the benefits. So suddenly people are doing seven-day fasts because that's going to make it even better. And it's, no, now you're starving yourself. And there's going to be a lot of negative effects. So try it. You could experiment with it. There, there seems to be some benefits. But I'm really glad that, that you even said, you know, do this in the off-season. Be careful. We're still learning. Uh, and, and if you overdo this, you can quickly take it the wrong way. Chris? Yeah, I mean, that that's essentially uh, just what I was going to say, that this is... Um... One of those areas where uh, people people want to take what little we know right now and apply it, and that can sometimes be dangerous. I think keeping abreast of all the latest research in this area is going to be a really helpful thing for those that, you know, are the the ex experimenters out there, the people that like to experiment with these things, also the people that have actually seen benefits from it and have had personal experience from it. But uh, yeah, the more we know in the future, the the better we'll be, all of us, at applying this to our, our uh, training and hopefully getting those, honing those performance and adaptation gains. Well, thank you again, Dr. Carson. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we hope we can get you back on the program again in the future. This has been a great conversation. Uh, my pleasure, guys. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. Thank you very much for the invitation. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or send us a voicemail. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Brian Carson, Jim Miller, Petter Bakoch, Payson McKelvin, Dr. Inigo San Milan, Dr. Dale Bredesen, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.